Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. For Christians, hope is not the same thing as optimism. An optimist thinks things will always turn out okay. Well, that's not really true. I mean, look at what has happened to the church over our 2,000 years of history. We're a church of martyrs and confessors. That's Rod Dreer, and he's our guest today on Focus on the Family to share some really powerful stories of Christians who served God amid persecution. And I do hope you'll stay with us as we discuss how believers can live faithfully in a hostile culture. I'm John Fuller, and your host is Focus on the Family president, Jim Daly. John, it's so humbling to hear some of the hardships Christians endure, uh, not only right now, but over the centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've had the privilege to travel for Focus when I did the international work. I think I went to about 70 countries. I was in the Soviet Union when Gorbachev was taken hostage. Yeah, you were there that day. We were there for four or five days. We couldn't get out of the country, but we went down and we were with the defecting tank commanders. And, you know, it was a really interesting time as an American to watch a country kind of evolve out of communism Mm -hmm. uh, and into something probably also totalitarian. But it always catches my interest to talk about how does the church behave in this context? And there are some wonderful lessons to learn from history. And I'm excited to talk with our guest today because he has done some amazing interviews around the world, but primarily there in the East Bloc to identify uh, communism, socialism, totalitarianism, what does it look like, what does it smell like, and what we need to be looking out for is the church in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of applications for us today uh, coming out of the work that Rod uh, Dreer did for his book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. We're so glad to have him here. He's a journalist and uh, has written a number of other books, but this one, Live Not by Lies, is uh, going to be the foundation for our conversation today. Just call 1-800-THE-LETTER-A-IN-THE-WORD-FAMILY or stop by FocusOnTheFamily.com slash broadcast to get your copy. Rod, uh, welcome to Focus on the Family. It's great to be here, Jim. Thanks it, for having it's me. It's really good to have you here because I love uh, cultural observers. You know, Oz Guinness does that. You're doing that. Uh, as I mentioned, you interviewed dozens of believers who suffered for their faith under communism um, and these are mature Christians, uh, in my experience. These are not the milk toast Christians that the Apostle Paul was talking about. These are people that are committed. Uh, they have, in some cases, given their lives for the faith and for the expression of freedom. What did you take away from your conversations with them? Oh, wow. That's, first of all, humility. You know, mm. I'm blessed. We are all blessed to have grown up in the United States with the blessing of religious liberty. And uh, to go over there, though, and talk to Christians, and I went to Russia, I went to uh, Poland, to Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, to talk to Christians who had had to pay a real price, the loss of liberty, in some cases even torture for the gospel. It made me realize, first of all, how blessed we have been in America, but also it made me realize that we have so much to learn from them. And to be honest with you, the reason I got over there in the first place was because back in 2015, I think it was, I got a phone call from an American physician who was really frantic. He told me that his mother, who had spent four years in a Czech prison in the 1950s because she refused to stop going to church, she immigrated to America and has lived here most of her life. But she said, son, the things I see happening in America today remind me of what I escaped from. 
I thought that was really alarmist, but I made a point, Jim, every time I would travel and I would meet people who had grown up in the Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc and had come to America uh, during the Cold War, I would just ask them, are the things you're seeing today, does it remind you of what you left behind? Every single one of them said yes. And if you talk to them long enough, they get angry that American Christians won't take them seriously. Hmm. Well, and I think it's important for us to know what that looks like. What are they expressing Hmm. that we should be concerned about? I mean, for some people, we're so blinded, we don't even see it right in front of us. They've had the experience of seeing a government take control of people's liberties and squash them. And I think that's the right question. What are they seeing? They're seeing cancel culture going everywhere. They're seeing people having to be afraid for their jobs, for their livelihoods, and for their reputation. Well, and and afraid to speak their mind, Exactly. That's the point. Yeah, exactly. They get on the wrong side of the ideology. And what's interesting about this, Jim, is it's not just coming from the government. It may not at this point even primarily be coming from the government. It's coming from the fact that the left has taken over all of the major institutions of American society. It started at the universities and the media, and now it's expanded to big business, to sports, uh, to law, to medicine, even the U.S. military. We call it wokeness. This is a, a softer form of the totalitarianism they left behind. And these people, these emigres, these precious people who came to this country looking for freedom, they're warning us, if you don't step out of your complacent, comfortable zone and speak out now and make a preparation for what's coming, it's going to be too late. Hey, Rod, I, I have had some taste of this when I traveled, as I mentioned, uh, being in the Soviet Union. I also went to Cuba when Fidel Castro was still in power. I went with Dave Dervecki, a former major league baseball pitcher, and he did a clinic, and we talked to people, Mm -hmm. uh, been to China. In those contexts, uh, one of the things that is an early indicator of a problem is when we have to speak in code. Mm -hmm. You know, we stop speaking our mind. We start saying, well, we've got to say it differently Mm -hmm. because somebody may be offended by what we say. And I think that's an early indicator of a problem. Absolutely. I was in Russia on the National Day of Remembrance for uh, the victims of political violence. I went out to the National Monument, which is a field called Butovo Field, south of Moscow, where the KGB, in a 14-month period in the 1930s, massacred 25,000 people on that field. Mm. Today, it is the National Monument to remember them. While I was there, I was looking at a, a poster to help me orient myself to the site, Uh, An older Russian man came up and asked me, said, what are you doing here? He asked through my translator. And the translator explained to him that I was working on this book about what I call soft totalitarianism. And uh, the translator said, people in America are losing their jobs now because they get on the wrong side of this ideology. That old Russian who was there to pray for his family members who were murdered there, he said, that's always the first sign when people have to fear for their jobs because uh, they're on the wrong side of the ruling ideology. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, Rod, one of the difficulties, if you watch the news or just have a conversation at work, something like that, this concept, it's the title of your book, Live Not By Lies, which is a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard for people, especially if I could just say us average people, to comprehend what is true right now, because even in the expression of news, you've got left-leaning news, you got right-leaning news, and you can't say this is a hand. 
Right. I mean, it's like we can't agree that this is a hand. I'm holding my yeah. hand up for the audio listeners. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that it's that absurd right now. And so to get to the point, live not by lies, I guess the first thing you have to do is define what is true. This is one of the core problems that we face today. And this is one of the things I learned from the Christians who suffered under communism. They said that you have got to make a stand in truth. You've got to know what you believe and stand there and defend it. Because one of the things that totalitarians will do is try to confuse you and make you think that truth is totally relative. If you can't stand firmly on truth, uncompromisingly on truth, then you're not going to make it through what they throw at you. Mm. And uh, this is something that so many normal people think that we can just get past it if we just vote the right people in. If I can give you one quick example, uh, you probably know Ryan T. Anderson, the head of the Ethics and Public mm -hmm. Policy Center in Washington, a very brave warrior for traditional uh, values and for the traditional family. Ryan wrote a book a couple of years ago called When Harry Became Sally. It's a response to the transgender moment. Ryan is a very faithful Catholic, but he's also an incredibly uh, respectful and careful scholar. This is a good book that challenges transgender ideology. Earlier in 2021, Amazon very quietly decided to stop selling the book. Right. Why? They said that we won't sell books anymore that construe transgenderism as a mental disability or a mental illness. Well, you know what? That's their right to do so in our free country. A bookseller shouldn't have to sell anything he doesn't want to sell. I would note, though, that Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, you can still buy that through Amazon. Mm -hmm. But be that as it may, booksellers have the right to do this. But here's the thing. Amazon controls so much of the retail book market in the United States that if it decides it is no longer going to sell a certain kind of book, those books will not get published because no publisher can afford to do this. So we have here a case of a, a corporate actor using its liberties in the public square to remove from the public square discussion about an important issue like transgenderism. This is the way that the soft totalitarianism is taking place. They haven't changed the laws. The government hasn't gotten involved here. The When you have places like booksellers, publishers, media, corporations, et cetera, deciding within their rights, their constitutional rights to to abandon liberalism, classical liberalism, this is what you get. Rod, let's go back to that idea of live not by lies, the title of your book, the quote of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You have an illustration in your book, I think by Havel's uh, Green, Green Grocer. Grocer. Describe that and what does it communicate? Well, Václav Havel was a dissident in the same era of Solzhenitsyn, and he later became the first president of a free Czechoslovakia. And he, uh, in a 1977 essay called The Power of the Powerless, he talked about how people who had no political power could nevertheless step out and effect change. And uh, this is a principle that Solzhenitsyn uh, started out with in his essay, Live Not by Lies, but Havel really explored it. And he invented a parable of a greengrocer. He said, imagine that you have someone who sells fruits and vegetables in a communist city. Uh, all the businesses in town have to hang up the sign in the window, workers of the world unite, the Marxist slogan. Nobody believes it, but they hang that sign there just to avoid trouble. Well, what happens, says Havel, if the greengrocer one day says, you know what, I'm not going to live by this lie anymore, and he takes the sign down. Well, 
the secret police will come take him away. They will seize his business. He will be forced to be a janitor or something. His family won't be able to travel. His kids won't be able to get into good colleges, etc. He will pay a price. But what has he gained, says Havel? He has shown that if you are willing to suffer for your convictions, then you don't have to live by lies, that conforming to this system is not inevitable for those who are prepared to suffer. And when other people see that he has been willing to live by his convictions and suffer for them, they'll be drawn to that. And eventually, this will overturn the government. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Man, I knew my marriage was falling apart. I just didn't know how to fix it. I felt like I would always be alone, even if I stayed married. At Focus on the Family's Hope Restored Marriage Intensive, we offer hope to couples in crisis so they can have the marriage they've always dreamed of. For the first time, I felt like my husband truly heard me. I've received some great tools from the counselors that have changed my life and my marriage. To begin the journey of finding health, go to HopeRestored.com today. I'm here asking people what happens when you turn 70 and a half. You get free ice cream for life? Uh, you get more senior discounts? When you turn 70 and a half, you are eligible for an IRA charitable rollover, and you can give that to Focus on the Family. You can find out more at FocusPlannedGiving.com. Reduce your taxable income and help families thrive for generations to come. It's a gift that appreciates, and we appreciate you for giving it. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Rod, our goal here is not to, I think, spin people into a negativity. Sure. And what I want to do with at least some of the time we have left is talk about what God would expect of us, um, what we as Christians should do to preserve these liberties and uh, to fight for the things that are right. right. How how do you balance all that? Well, I I want to assure your listeners, your viewers, that this is a hopeful book. It's a scary book because the things that the people who endured communism, the Christians who endured communism, the things they're talking about are pretty scary. We've not seen that in this country before, and they are convinced, and I am too, that it is coming in one way or the other. But what they say is do not lose hope, that for Christians, hope is not the same thing as optimism. An optimist thinks things will always turn out okay. Well, that's not really true. I mean, look at look at what has happened to the church over the, our 2,000 years of history. We're a church of martyrs and confessors. But a, for a Christian, hope is that if you suffer faithfully for Jesus Christ and you're willing to take whatever the world throws out at you, then you will triumph. The Lord will triumph through your sacrifice. And uh, these people I talked to over there, not one of them, Jim, expected to live to see the end of communism. They resisted it because they're believers and because it was the right thing to do. And yet the Lord surprised them. I think we need to be thinking that way, but we can't think past the fact that we Christians in America are going to be called to suffer. And this is the key that the dissidents in Eastern Europe told me that got them through this. I talked to this one Baptist pastor in Russia. I remember Yuri Sipko is his name. We're standing on the street corner in Moscow in early November. The snow is starting to fall. And he looked at me in the eye and said, go back to America and tell the church, if you're not prepared to suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ, 
you're not going to make it through what's coming. That is the key message of this book. Now, people don't want to hear that we're going to have to suffer, but this has been the story of the Christian church since the very beginning. It yeah. is the story of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Muslim countries today, in China and other nations. Why should we think that the cup is going to pass us by? But if we suffer faithfully, the Lord will bless us immoderately. I'm convinced of that. I agree. And I think we cannot lose who we are in Christ to fight that battle. We no. have to maintain that identity in Christ mm -hmm. through the battle. In fact, from that, I think there was a three-part admonishment for the church yeah. to pursue, which was see, judge, and act. Mm -hmm. Describe those three. Mm -hmm. This was his simple method of preparing the church, Father Kolakovich's. This man was a, a Catholic priest doing work against the Nazis in his native Zagreb in 1943. He got a note that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he escaped to his mother's home country, Slovakia and began teaching in the Catholic University there. He told his students, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the Soviets are going to be ruling this country when it's over, and the first thing they're going to do is persecute the church. We have to get ready. So he began building these small prayer groups, mostly of young people, to come together to pray and to ask uh, God to show them what to do, and then to decide how they can build a network so the church can survive persecution. His own bishops in that country chastised him. They said, this is hogwash, Father. It's never going to happen here. But that priest had studied communism because he wanted to be a missionary in the Soviet Union. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he kept working. Sure enough, in 1948, when the Iron Curtain fell over that country, the first thing they did was go after the churches. The fact that there was an underground church in Slovakia for the 40 years of communism is due to the fact that Father Kolakovich and his followers did not listen to the bishops who said, oh, it's all going to be fine, but they read the signs of the times and they acted. He said that when groups would come together for prayer and study, he would call on them to see, which is to say, look around you at the world around you and figure out you know, what are the challenges facing the church. What is true? What is true? What is true? What is false? To judge, which is to say, to talk among yourselves about how uh, we can understand what's happening in light of Scripture, in light of what our faith teaches us. And then to act is to decide on a plan of action. Don't just make this a discussion group, but come out of there with a plan to go do something something practical that will strengthen the church and make it resilient through what's to come. This is a simple plan that any Christian group can follow, any prayer group can follow, any Sunday school can follow, but you need to come together and not be afraid to say what you really are seeing because it's important. And the left doesn't want us to talk about this. They want us to be lulled into complacency. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people on our side in the church who want us to be lulled into complacency too. But these Christians in the Soviet bloc, former Soviet bloc, they warn us that complacency is our deadly enemy. Hmm. Rudd, in that vein, against what you just shared, um, I'm thinking about maybe a small group that meets and does what you said. They're, they're sitting together on a regular basis, seeing, judging, acting. What does that look like practically in today's world? Yeah. Well, you know, I am an Eastern Orthodox Christian, but one of the things I learned from talking to these people is that in prison and in the gulag, denominational differences fell aside. All of those brothers and sisters in Christ helped each other and prayed for each other. Um, and I think that 
that's one thing that we have to do now without giving up our denominational distinctives, but we need to reach out across denominational lines and find brothers and sisters in Christ who see the crisis yeah. and who are willing to come together. We need to do things like um, establishing churches, funds to support families when the breadwinner loses their job because they have taken a stand for Christ in a corporation that fires them for it, they need to be encouraged in a practical, material way that if they take this stand, their church family has their back materially. Mm -hmm. Little things like that are things we need. We also need to form these networks of communication. I, when I was in Europe earlier this year, I gave a talk about that to a, an international group of Christians who see what's coming, and they want to get down these networks of communication in place now before the persecution starts. Mm. Rod, I think when you hear this, there's going to be kind of two responses. Some people may be kind of excited to live in a time when God is on the move, and we mm. have to be bold for the Lord. And others, like you said, that um, our friends in the East Block observed, they shrink back. They don't want the confrontation or the conflict. Why do you think after talking to all these people, the, the dissidents, um, what got them through that persecution? What was the end result? Well, they would all say that their faith got them through it, and that's true. But I think that the core part of their faith that got them through it was that they all had a theology of suffering. They knew on faith that their suffering meant something, that it wasn't just meaningless, that they offered their sacrifices to the Lord, and they knew, because they knew their church history, that they may be called to be martyrs you know, for Christ, but that the Lord brings good out of that. They were willing to suffer death in this world before um, apostatizing. So I, I like to tell people when I talk about this book and about my previous book, The Benedict Option, I say that we need to prepare ourselves as Christians to live like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in, uh, in captivity in Babylon. They served the king living in that world, but they also knew who they were to the point that when they were asked to bow down before the false idol, they were prepared to die rather than betray the Lord that way. That's the same mentality that got these Christians of the communist bloc through all the torture and persecution. Their suffering had meaning. They, they were joining Jesus on the cross. Rod, one of, one of the difficult concepts here is the idea that this life is temporary, that this isn't the life. Uh, we're passport holders of heaven as Christians, not of the United States or of this world. How do, how do you encourage people to think of the bigger picture here that we're all going to die at some point mm -hmm. in this life, but for Christians, it's the step into eternal life with the Father. That's right. But why, why do we as Christians even struggle understanding the long-term nature of eternity versus temporary? Yeah, I wonder... Jim, if it's that we don't know enough about the experiences of the early church and the age of martyrdom, and we don't know enough about the experiences of Christians today in the 21st century, like the Chinese people you were mentioning, like the Christians of the Near East who have been so viciously persecuted, uh, we should be asking ourselves, why is it that a couple of years ago on that beach in Libya when ISIS beheaded 24 Egyptian Christians, any one of those Christians could have saved his life by renouncing Christianity and accepting Islam, but all of them knew 
that to do that would be to apostatize and to go to hell. They knew that it was an honor to suffer even death for the Lord. Mm -hmm. And they now, back in their home culture in Egypt, the churches recognized them as martyrs, as people to be emulated. I think in, in America, we tend to be so present focused that we're, we don't even pay attention to the experience of the church in centuries past or in other countries now. And so suffering doesn't make sense to us. It does make sense to these people, though, because they know that this is ordinary Christianity and yeah. history. I'll say one more thing. The Pastor Richard Wormbrandt, who was a Lutheran who suffered in the Romanian gulag, um, he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ that many of your listeners might know. He said that everybody, when they become a Christian, they think they would be able to withstand anything for Christ. But you only know who's the real disciple when it comes time to suffer. Uh, Jesus calls disciples, but the difference between the admirer and the disciple comes when the secret police knock on your door to take you away. We have got to prepare ourselves now, we, the American church, to be disciples, because we're not going to know if we're really disciples or we're mere admirers until we have to suffer for our, our confession of faith. Rod, um, as we close here, I just want to say to the support group of Focus on the Family, one of the proudest things I think we ever did here at Focus, mm -hmm. quietly, I mean, I know I'm going to share this on the radio now, but when those martyrs were beheaded on that beach, um, the Lord put on my heart, the reason they were there was to make money to help their families back home, finish their house, put a roof on their house, whatever it may have been. And we have an office in Cairo. And Sami Yaqub is the man who runs that effort there for us. And I called him. I said, what do you think it would cost to help them? And I made about six phone calls to the donor community. And we were able to raise enough money to finish the homes for those people that were martyred. And I'm telling you, man, that's just one of the best things I think Focus has ever done. I'm getting and, chills uh, hearing that. God bless you. It's the you. way we need to do it. That's the kind of solidarity that we need. It's a yeah. solidarity of the gulag, a solidarity in suffering. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, as you mentioned, in these other lands, they understand that we in America are facing immense spiritual danger because we're so soft. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Uh, Rod, thank you uh, for this. Uh, we want to continue. So let's mm -hmm. come back next time. Keep the conversation going. You got me into a mess now <laughs> emotionally, but uh, I just so appreciate what your clarion call is about in your wonderful book, even though it's tough. Uh, Live not by lies. It's like you are hitting the very cultural pulse of what we need to know. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful that you've written it. Thank you. Thank you, brothers. Thank you for having me on. Mm. And let me remind you, the listener, that we exist to be a resource to you. Uh, Focus on the Family's news website, The Daily Citizen, covers current events from a Christian worldview. And you can find out more and sign up to receive the daily headlines in your inbox by visiting focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And please get this great book by Rod and teach your kids to walk in God's truth as we discussed today. Now, if you can commit to a monthly pledge or a one-time gift to support the ministry here, we'll send a copy of Live Not By Lies to you. It's our way of saying thank you for partnering with us and joining our support team as we equip the next generation to be faithful followers of Christ. Donate and get your copy of Rod's book when you call 800, the letter A, and the word family. 800-232-6459 or visit focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. 
On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again continue the conversation and help you and your family thrive in Christ. listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break and then return with the second half of this program for your family. Stay tuned. Today on Focus on the Family with Jim Daly, we're continuing a really important conversation about what it looks like to stand for God's truth in our culture. Here's Rod Dreer. I was traveling with my interpreter, a young Christian woman married with a little child at home, was pregnant at the time, and we are heading to do an interview, and she said, Rod, you know, I really struggle as a Christian mom. I try to talk to my friends, even my Christian friends, about the struggles I have as a wife and mom, and they just don't understand it. If I say that my husband and I are arguing, they say, oh, well, get a divorce. Put your son back in daycare. You've got to be happy. Live for yourself. She said, I try to tell them. I am happy. I'm happy being a mom. I'm happy being a wife, but it's not always easy. She said they don't understand that uh, life involves, a good life involves struggle. John, our conversation yesterday was so intriguing. And I know some people may go, wow, you know, I'm in the middle of taking care of my kids and holding down a job and all those normal things that we have to do. But I'm telling you, if you're reading the newspaper or you're reading online content about the culture and where we're at Mm -hmm. and hearing from various sources, you know the country feels different. Something is askew. Uh, It's hard Mm -hmm. to put a a handle on it, but something's different. Uh, Traditional values, they're uh, changing. I mean, the attitude of the people about embracing those values and the institutions like we talked last time, the media, universities, even big business now, it has really embraced the woke culture. And we discussed that last time. We're going to pick up the conversation today with our guest and continue to hopefully live by truth, not by lies, uh, which is the title of his book. That's a great reference to the book that Rod Dreher wrote. Uh, he's written a number of books, and the one that will form the basis for our conversation today is a New York Times bestseller, Live Not By Lies. We can send a copy of that to you. Make a donation if you can when you stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Rod, welcome back to Focus. It's great to be back. So good to have you here. And I I feel like I'm a bit of a culture nerd because I do, (laughs) I'm into this and I, I get excited about it. Because I think it's a very exciting time to live, mm-hmm. even though things look a little gloomy mm-hmm. when it comes to religious freedom, religious liberty, expression of faith, people that may not like what we're thinking or expressing. And that's kind of the baseline. You mentioned soft totalitarianism. Uh, explain uh, again what that is referring to and how we're experiencing it here in the U.S. Sure. Well, when people think of totalitarianism, We think of the Soviet Union. We think of uh, gulags and prisons and secret police. We think of George Orwell's 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have that today, so people wonder, why can you call this totalitarianism? Well, I'll tell you why. Totalitarianism is an ideology that emerged in the early 20th century, and it takes authoritarianism, a system in which only one leader or one party has all the political power, and it expands it to cover all of society. In other words, all of society becomes political. 
you can have this kind of system even within a liberal democracy when one ideology gains control of all of the, the heights of culture. We're seeing that happen now. So what we're seeing is people being driven to affirm this single ideology, which we call wokeness, but nobody's being threatened by being sent to prison for it, at least not yet. So, But it is totalitarianism. And I can give you a, a comic example, but it's true. Uh, this past summer, I was in in Hungary on a fellowship, and I was talking to the Minister for Family Affairs over there. She told me that they were about to introduce into Parliament, two days hence, a bill to prohibit LGBT uh, propaganda for children and minors. And I said, oh, have you heard about the Blue's Clues Pride Parade? She's like, what? I explained to them Blue's Clues is a popular American kids cartoon for pre-K kids. And they had just this summer during LGBT Pride Month, uh, put out a pride march about all the different kinds of rainbow families, transgender families, polyamorous families, etc., to colonize the minds of children. Well, all the Hungarians, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. And I said, yeah, but this is normal in America now because the wokesters are not content just to conquer politics. They want every aspect of life to be political. Um, and we also see this, too, in the way that the critical race theory and these woke ideologies are classifying people according to race, to gender, to sexuality, and so forth. This is straight out of the communist playbook. In 1918, the head of the secret police in the new communist state in Russia told his agents in Ukraine to go out there and don't look to see if anybody actually committed crimes against the uh, Soviet Union. Just check and see what their social class is. That will tell you if they are an enemy of the regime who needs to be killed or sent to prison. In a similar way, this kind of totalitarianism is coming into being here in America through our institutions. Again, there's not coercion yet, but it's still happening. Yeah, let, let me ask you, though, uh, of course, in November, there was an election in Virginia that got a lot of press coverage, obviously. But one of the things that uh, we found out through the media reports is that the current administration encouraged the Department of Justice to apply the Patriot Act to work against these parents, to surveil these parents, to um, you know see what they were thinking and what they were doing, what they were talking about, I guess. But, I mean, that's beginning to tip beyond soft totalitarianism, just as an example of mm -hmm. how government can turn on its own people and begin to put a chilling effect on freedom of expression. Exactly. I mean, the people who came to this country from the communist countries say that totalitarianism may be soft now, but it's not going to stay soft forever. And what you bring up is a great example of how the government is starting to turn in a harder way. I just emphasize soft totalitarianism to wake people up who are looking for Orwellian signs and are not seeing too many of them. I want to let them know that, wait a minute, this is more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World style totalitarianism. And I'll give you an example. When I was in Budapest reporting on this book, I was traveling with my interpreter, a young Christian woman, married with a little child at home, was pregnant at the time. And we we're heading to do an interview. And she said, Rod, you know, I really struggle as a Christian mom. I try to talk to my friends, even my Christian friends, about the struggles I have as a wife and mom, and they just don't understand it. If I say that my husband and I are arguing, they say, oh, well, get a divorce. Put your son back in daycare. You've got to be happy. Live for yourself. She said, I try to tell them. 
I am happy. I'm happy being a mom. I'm happy being a wife, but it's not always easy. She said they don't understand that uh, life involves, a good life involves struggle. Mm. I looked at her and said, Anna, it sounds like you're fighting for the right to be unhappy. She looked at me and said, that's exactly it. Where did you get it? I went to chapter 17 on my smartphone of Brave New World of Aldous Huxley's book. And uh, in that case, the dissident in this fictional dystopia uh, confronts the world controller for Europe. And he's not threatening to torture the guy. He's like, why wouldn't you want to join our society? You're kept happy all the time. You're kept comfortable with drugs and entertainment. It's great. Why don't you want to be part of it? And the dissident says, because it's not human. He says, I want suffering. I want beauty. I want love. I want God. I want sin. In other words, he wants to be human. Well, the controller of this world says, you're welcome to it. This gem is a totalitarianism we're facing now, the totalitarianism that wins people to it by promising them comfort, comfort oh, yeah. and security over everything. And if we have raised our children to believe that anything that makes them anxious is wrong and should be avoided, then we're setting themselves up to be drones in this coming totalitarian dystopia. Mm. Uh, Rod, let me ask you, uh, that's soft totalitarianism. Let's talk about surveillance capitalism. Mm. Uh, that's an interesting term. I think I understand it, but what does it mean? Well, the term comes from a woman named Shoshana Zuboff. She was a former Harvard Business School professor, not a believer. Uh, she wrote this book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And what she meant by it was that around the year 2000, Google figured out a way to monetize all the, they call it exhaust, all the data generated by people doing their normal activities online. There was nothing that could be thrown away. They figured out a way to figure out how to read the data that people generate just by their Google searches, by where they go in the world that is all tracked on uh, later on smartphones, and figure out how to sell people things that way. We have become a country that is willing to give over all of our information to Facebook, to Google, to uh, Microsoft, Apple, etc., and it tells them where we are, who we hang out with, what our preferences are, and we don't even notice this. We're doing this because it makes our lives more convenient. What Shoshana Zuboff says is that we are setting ourselves up to be ruled by a dictatorship one day because all of this information is being saved. And what happens if Google or one of these big companies decides that you are a domestic terrorist because you go to you protested against the school board. They have ways to tell this. They, if you carried your smartphone in your pocket, you get put on a list. The government is collecting all this information too. I've been told by people in the intelligence community it is being saved. Now it's not being used against us now, but in the future, if they want to use this against us, they'll be able to. Where I think this is all going, Jim, is something called the social credit system. You've been to China. Oh, right. Yeah, you know about this. Yeah. In China, the totalitarian state is using the fact that everybody in China is wired into the internet to control the people. They know everything you do, everybody you meet, everything you buy, etc. Now China is almost a cashless society, so all transactions, almost all transactions, take place electronically. Well, the government also gives each citizen a social credit rating. If you do things the government considers to be positive, um, then like download the speeches of Xi Jinping, for example, you'll get a higher rating and more privileges. You can travel more, you can shop in the best stores, etc. Mm. But if you do things that the government considers to be antisocial, 
like go to church, like spend time with people who have low social credit ratings, you'll get a low rating too. And eventually it can get so low that you are not able to buy or sell to participate in the economy. Now, I don't have to tell this Christian audience what that means. We now have the technological means to make it impossible for people to buy or sell if they don't sign off on the ruling ideology. I fear that this is going to come to America too, and it's not gonna come primarily from the government. It's going to be instituted by major corporations. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of spying is so critical right now. Um, I heard uh, from a friend who has a friend in the Ivy League law school, an Ivy League law school. And he is part of the committee that reviews applications. I don't know if it's nine or 11 member committee of the mm -hmm. faculty. And what he has observed and has not responded, he's quiet, he's a Christian, but he's on this committee. Nobody on the committee knows he's a Christian. But these applications, if there's a mention of a missions trip or a mission of any church affiliation, this... Ivy League Law School rejects that application. And that's done behind these closed doors with these nine or 11 faculty members who are reviewing it. And he has not yet found the spine, according to my friend, to say, wait a minute, this is not right. In fact, it's illegal. Yep. You can't discriminate based on religion. Right. And yet they do it. And it appears like it's happening every day in the workplace or in schools. It happens all the time. I hear constantly from people uh, in big business and universities in the military who are talking about this very thing, that Christians or anybody who is a, a social conservative are being systematically discriminated against beneath the notice of anybody else. I wonder if this, your, your Ivy League... Uh, friend of a friend. Friend of a friend. I wonder if it might be the same person who reached out to me six or seven years ago. Uh, Ivy League law school faculty, a closeted Christian. He told me that Christians in this country have no idea what's about to hit us. And again, this was 2014, I believe. Hmm. He said that here at his law school, he says, nobody is a Christian except me, and I'm in the closet. He said that the people who, uh, at this law school, who produce the elite class of lawyers, who go on to populate the federal judiciary, they don't know anybody who's religious. They don't understand why religious liberty is important. And over time, this is going to matter. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. You know that situation your family's facing? It's okay to ask for professional help. Focus on the Family's Christian Counselors Network can confidentially point you to a trusted therapist near you. We've been connecting families to verified Christian counselors for more than 40 years. Find a way forward for your family at focusonthefamily.com slash get help. That's focusonthefamily.com slash get help. Oh, hey, Mike. Got here as soon as I could. What's going on, man? Hey, I just wanted to give you an update on my marriage. Is it good news? Yeah. Our marriage is going great right now. I couldn't be happier. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a solid 5 out of 10. <laughs> Having a marriage that's just okay isn't where couples really want to live. Give yourself and your spouse an all-inclusive weekend where you'll slow your pace and focus on each other. Get more details at FocusOnTheFamily.com getaway. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com getaway. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. 
Let me reference something and get your response to this. I was at uh, the National Religious Broadcasters, and they had a breakfast panel. And I was added at the last minute because somebody who they had planned for couldn't be there. And I get there, and it's a discussion very similar to this. How do we fight the culture war? How do we push back on the culture. And I mentioned, I'm not going to name the person's name that was the moderator because it doesn't matter, but I mentioned a story to him on this panel discussion where I was in China. Uh, I'd spent a week or 10 days there meeting people, leaders in the church, etc. As I was dropped off by this internal missionary couple, so Chinese husband and wife, they dropped me off at the airport and they said, oh, Mr. Daly, we'll be praying for you in America. And I just had the presence of mind to turn to them and say, well, how, how do you pray for us? And I remember they looked like, uh-oh, I shouldn't answer the question. And I said, no, how, how do you pray for us? And the gentleman said, well, we pray for greater persecution because from where we sit, Christians in America are very weak. Mm-hmm. Well, I shared this on the panel and the host, who is a radio personality that all the listeners would know, said to me, that's hogwash theology. Really? I'm serious. And I, I sat there immediately as he attacked me for that. I started getting texts from people in the audience saying, you are absolutely right. Keep saying that. Mm. And I, I just find it amazing that we in the Christian community wouldn't understand what suffering in Christ is all about. And you know, one thing that occurs to me, and I've used this myself to bolster my own uh, faith when I've been discouraged. I think about the man I talk about in the book called Sylvester Kirchmeri. He was a young physician who was part of the underground church in Slovakia. He was the right-hand man to Father Kolakovich. And sure enough, the secret police grabbed him off the street in 1951 or 52 to take him to prison. He tells in his memoir that he laughed when they got him. And the secret police said, why are you laughing? He said, because it is an honor to suffer for my Lord. You know, and he went into prison with that attitude, and he said that he knew that if he pitied himself, he would fall apart, because they kept him in prison for 10 years, and they tortured him. He said, I told myself every day that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ, and I am God's probe here in the prison. I'm here to learn more about myself and deepen my own repentance and to serve others. So he went forth to pray for people, to witness to people. He did not complain, even though he had every right to, but he said, this is the mission the Lord has given me. I tell another story in the book about uh, this amazing Russian Christian um, named Alexander Ogorodnikov, who was a late convert, came from a prominent communist family, converted like in the early 70s and began holding prayer meetings in his apartment in Russia, in Moscow. They threw him into the worst prison in Russia, put him on death row even though he didn't have a death sentence because they wanted to make an example of him. He went in there determined just to evangelize, to witness to the hardest criminals in the whole, all of Russia. He was so successful at it that they put him in solitary confinement to keep him away from the other prisoners, and they began to torture him. I talked to him in Moscow. His face is still partially paralyzed from the beatings he took. Mm. Well, Ogorodnikov told me that he got really discouraged. He began to wonder, Lord, have you abandoned me here? An angel woke him up one night and gave him a vision in which he saw a prisoner being led to his execution with his hands behind his back by two guards. And uh, it was a real live vision. This vision came back night after night with a different prisoner. Ogorodnikov finally realized that the Lord was showing him the men who were being led 
to their execution, condemned murderers, but they had accepted Christ because he had been there to witness to them in that prison, and they were going to be with the Lord in paradise forever because he was there. And that's how Ogorodnikov got back his faith, because he knew that the Lord had picked him to be his apostle there to the wretched of the earth. This is the attitude that all of us Christians need to adopt from these precious believers who really suffer for Christ. Well, and the, the summary statement of that is there's purpose in suffering yeah. in Christ. Yeah. And we are, you know, again, as a comfort-oriented culture, we are immature in understanding what that means. Mm-hmm. Rod, let me uh, point this to the family as we come in for a landing. Because, again, I've always said that when you look at um, the Lord and the Lord's work, there's three institutions that he established, uh, the church, the government, and the family. And uh, I think that's why the church and the family are under such assault by the government, right? And uh, the family in your book, and you point out in the Eastern Bloc under communism, how the family became a vital tool Hmm. to maintain Christian discipline and that hope that you talk about. And that does bring us back, I think, to the Binda parents. So why don't we work that in as to how they use the family rightfully to raise their kids in a healthy way? I'm so glad you asked about them. This is the most impressive family. Uh, They live in Prague. Václav and Camilla Benda were the parents. Václav died in 1999, but his wife Camilla is still going. They were the only Christians in the inner circle of Václav Havel in the Czech dissidents. The Benda family Uh, raised six kids in communism at a time when the parents were targeted by the regime because of their activism. In fact, the dad went to prison for four years. But they understood that the family had to be where the resistance to totalitarianism began. So what would they do? When the kids would come home from school, they had to go to communist schools. Václav, the dad, a mathematician, would sit down with them and help them to understand what they had heard that day and to pick out truth from lies. Camilla, her main role was to read to the kids. She too was a professor and she would read to them two or three hours a day, um, even when her husband was in prison, because she knew that to build their moral imagination was vital. So uh, I asked her, Camilla, what did you read to them? She said, I read myths, I read the classics, and I read a lot of Tolkien. I said, Tolkien? Why Tolkien? She looked at me straight in the eyes and said, because we knew that Mordor was real. And I began to understand what she meant by that. Yeah, that these children, they couldn't understand Marxism, Leninism. They did not get the details of this, but they could understand the fellowship of the ring. Today, 30 years after communism, all of the Benda kids have kids of their own, and all of them are faithful Christians, even though... The Czech Republic is the most atheist country in all of Europe. It all started in the family, though, with the family, the Benda family, the mom and dad, consciously raising these kids to be countercultural. The kids, too, talked, now adults, talked about how their father and mother were such icons of courage for them. They saw their mom and dad taking tough stands and being willing to pay the price for it. So I I just love this family so much. I dedicated a whole uh, chapter in the book to them because they are a real model for all of us Christians today who may wonder, how can we resist this? You know, we tend to think of resistance as only like going out to protest or, or voting. In fact, The Bendis say there are things that you can do and you must do in the daily life of your family to build this resistance into your kids. And what's so reinforcing with what you're saying is this innate understanding in our hearts as human beings that there's good and evil. 
even yeah. when academicians and others are trying to say, no, that's a construct of religion. But we know. Yeah. You know what evil is when people treat other people so aggressively and so harshly when you murder somebody. Sure. Um, or many people, right? So it's interesting that they turned to literature that mm. illustrated that concept of good and evil. Yeah. That's the whole struggle. And you know, again, the suffering thing comes back. When Václav Benda was in prison, he was there for four years, at one point the government made an offer to him. He said, the government said to him, we'll let you leave the country with your wife and kids if you will just resign from the dissident movement. And he wanted to do it. He missed his family. You know, Camilla was struggling with six kids at home. And he wrote to his wife and said, should we accept this? That lady wrote back to him, spine of steel. And she said, no, if we abandon the people who are looking to us uh, for courage and inspiration, if we abandon them to save ourselves by going west, we will have abandoned God. So stay in prison, keep praying, we'll fight the fight on the home front. Mm. We, this is the quality of people that we have to become in the American church if we're going to survive what's coming. If you're soft, it's not going to go well for us. And we also have to be prepared to be persecuted from within in our own churches. I'm hearing this too from a lot of Christians that so many uh, people in churches, pastors too, just want to pretend that everything's okay. They don't want to upset people. Uh, in fact, read the signs of the times. God is giving us the freedom to prepare before the persecution starts. And uh, some people think I'm being alarmist. I, I hope I am. I would love to be proved wrong. But if I'm not wrong about this, and we have not taken the time that the Lord has given us now and the liberty to prepare, then we're in serious trouble. Right. I mean, this is so good. And I hope the people that are resonating, who are listening and watching, I hope they they get it and they understand. And what a great resource, your book, to equip people to better understand the signs of the times, right? This is like the Berean church. Understand yeah. what we're in mm -hmm. so that you can respond appropriately as a Christian and help your children understand the environment that we're in. This is a great resource, and I hope you can feel that. And if you can help support Focus to do the ministry that we're attempting to do, one of those three institutions that God has created, the family, to help strengthen it. I mean, I hope you're encouraged. We had over 300,000 people come to Christ through Focus on the Family last year, and we measure it every year. And that's one of the gemstones of the effort here. I never knew that we did that. We started to measure it, and lo and behold, we found out so many people come to Christ or rededicate their life to the Lord through the ministry here at Focus. So help us. Be a part of it. Mm -hmm. That's God's economy. Uh, we're the engine, but we need the gas from you to make it happen. So if you can sign up to be a monthly supporter or a one-time gift, we'll send you a copy of Rod's book, Live Not By Lies, as our way of saying thank you for being a part. Yeah, join the support team. Make your donation today. Ask for your copy of Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Uh, we have it here at the ministry. Our number is 800, the letter A and the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And this reminder that uh, we also have a great resource for you. Uh, it'll arrive in your inbox every day, uh, Monday through Friday. It's called The Daily Citizen. Sign up for that, and uh, that way you'll be able to read the Times, as we've talked about today, and stay up with the latest in cultural currents. Again, uh, our website is focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Rod, again, thank you so much for being here and helping us to discern the times that we're in. 
Well, thanks so much for having me. This kind of thing is so important that we Christians talk to each other. And let us never forget that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Mm-hmm. Amen. What a great note to close out our conversation. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team here, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ.